Well, that's a good word. Let us all stand for the benediction, and we will get on with the rest of our day. Wow. <clears throat> oh, just joking. Pastor joke. All right. Just, we'll be out in 60 minutes, I'm sure. All right, here we go. All right, we are nearing the end of our message series on the Apostles' Creed this week and next week. And uh, that will be the, the series, and we'll move on to, to, to something else after that. I hope this has been meaningful you. We've been meaningful to you. We've been looking at the, the creed, the statements of the creed, asking the questions, what difference do they really make in our life? And last week we talked about Jesus' ascent into heaven. We said that when Jesus ascended into heaven, um, he, he did that so he could rule. He didn't do that to check out of the earth, to, to escape. He did it so he could begin his, his rule and reign. But he throws us a curveball and he says, I'm going to reign through you. I'm going to give to you my spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. In the creed we say, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And in saying that, we believe the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and empowers us so that we can reign with Christ, so that Christ can reign through us. That's what we talked about last week, and today we get to this curious little phrase in the Lord's, uh, in the Apostles' Creed, I believe, we believe, in the Holy Catholic Church. What does that mean? Stand up, as we've done every week, and let's recite the creed together. You will sit back down after this. Uh, the words to the Apostles' Creed are on the screens. Let's say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now you may be seated. So what does this little phrase mean? Holy Catholic Church. Little um, answer out loud moment here. We don't do this too often in my sermons, but here's an answer out loud moment. What comes to your mind when you think of the word holy? What does holy mean? Let's take that first word. What's that? Set, set apart. Christ, Christ-like, Christ-centered, Christ-like. Yeah, it's... I think it's both. I think holiness, there is this purity quality to it. Um, we are Christ-like. Holiness is Christ-likeness. There was that purity part of holiness. And also, um, holy to be holy means to be set apart. Someone over here said to be set apart, to be different, so that you can be used for a very special purpose, a different purpose. So that's holy. 
Christ-like, but also set apart for a special purpose. And the word Catholic, the Catholic Church, the word Catholic in the Apostles' Creed isn't referring to some strand of Christianity like the Roman Catholic Church. Rather, the word Catholic comes from two Greek words, one meaning um, about or according to, and the other meaning whole. It's about the whole. It's according to the whole. So the word Catholic in the Apostles' Creed is talking about the wholeness of the church. We believe in the holy one church, or if you want to think of it in a confusing way, the holy whole church. Holy Catholic, holy one united church. We are a whole. So putting this together, I believe in the one church that is set apart for a special purpose. Now, this attitude about the church, this belief about the church is much different than a a very common attitude today, I think. That church is an enjoyable place for me to go so that I can hear a sermon and sing songs that all align according to my personal preferences. That is not what church is about. The church is about being this one body set apart by God for a very special and larger purpose. What is that purpose? Well, we could say lots of different things. We could look at lots of different scriptures about what is the purpose of the church. I want to take us to Matthew chapter 16. Um, Jesus is with his disciples, and and, uh, he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says this to Peter, you're right. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And there's a little uncertainty, perhaps, about what exactly did Jesus mean? Did he mean that he was going to build his church on Peter, which means rock? On Peter I will build my church, or on the confession that Peter made in in our confessions today, that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is Lord. On that confession, Jesus will build his church. I think it's at least the latter of those two, maybe maybe both, but at least the latter of those. And Jesus says, and on, on this confession that I am Lord, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Everything that we associate with Hades, darkness and fear and death and despair, Jesus says the church will overcome, will prevail against everything that seeks to tear you apart everything that seeks to to bring you down, to discourage you, to lead you into despair, the church will overcome. The church is holy and has a special purpose to overcome, not to be a club or an enjoyable place on Sunday morning, but to prevail against darkness in the world. That's a special purpose. How do we become that one church. I want us to look at Colossians chapter 3, um, verses 11 through 17. So if you have your Bible, open up to that. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one, hopefully in one of the seats in front of you, one of our Bibles. 
And you can turn to page 1167 if you're using one of our Bibles. Colossians 3, verses 11 through 17. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do. Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And one of the reasons why I chose this passage is because in it, Paul um, identifies three ways that the church, that Christians, that we in the church can be completely countercultural, truly set apart from the rest of culture, and in doing those things, we will be made incredibly strong. So let's look at these three things. I'm going to give you three phrases. They might not be complete sentences. Three phrases to describe these countercultural ways of living. And the first one is this, unity despite differences. That characterizes the church that Jesus is building. And I don't have to give you many examples of disunity today for you to realize the division and the polarization and the skepticism that exists in so many relationships today, do I? People just don't trust one another today. Set up in different camps. We're fractured. We're fractured. And one of the greatest gifts the church can give our our culture, the people around us, is is unity, is, is being one instead of being fractured. There is strength in unity when you know that your life is a part of others and that others' lives are part of part of your life, part of my life. So I want you to think about what, what provides a sense of unity in, in general. One story that I've used on this is um, about 10 years ago, an Astros game that I went to. Anyone here like Astros games? An Astros game that I went to. And uh, I remember vividly this moment, and it had nothing to do with what was going on in the ball game. About the seventh inning or so, I mean, it was kind of, the Astros won, and uh, they're playing really well, and we were cheering loud. We were getting kind of ruckus in the stands. It was a lot of fun. About the seventh inning or so, a, a, a man four or five rows down from me, he just stood up, and he announced to us all, well, I got to go. And he walks up the aisle, and he's high-fiving 
all of us strangers, and we don't we don't know him. He doesn't know us. He's like, I gotta go. He announces it to the crowd, and he's just high five and high five and all the way up to the you know the 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 concourse out there, and there was this unmistakable sense of unity in the moment with all these high fives going on with amongst us strangers. We're all coming from different backgrounds, but we had one thing in common, a shared story of this baseball game, of the Astros playing great. It's our team. It's our story, the shared story that we have. So unity comes from some shared story. You might gravitate towards those who share the same neighborhood stories as story as yours people living on your street in your in your neighborhood i remember uh, some of the, the the closest friends we still have in the northwest part of houston was a family or is a family that lived across the street from us we didn't know them at all until we shared the same story of going through hurricane ike together and then cleaning up all the all the stuff all the debris and just going through that together and cleaning up together the shared story and we became great friends. So it's a shared story that brings unity. Maybe you um, find unity with people. You're drawn to people with the, with the same kind of generational story. Maybe you're empty nesters, and you're, so you're going through common experiences as, as empty nesters. Or maybe you're, you find commonality with, with uh, other families with preschoolers. you got preschoolers, and you got all these crazy preschool kid stories, and that shared story brings you a sense of, of unity. Paul says, if you are a Christian, you share a story with everyone else who is a Christian. Look at verse 11. He says, here there is no Gentile or Jew. So here, so if you are to go back a few verses, you would see that here is not referring to some physical location, but rather this new state of being. Paul says, you have a new identity in Jesus Christ. So he's talking about here, in this new identity that you have in Jesus Christ. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew. So religious backgrounds. You may have a different religious background as someone else in the church. And Paul is saying, those back may be important to you, but it's not where your identity is. So religious backgrounds aren't going to be barriers anymore. No um, circumcised or uncircumcised, talking about, the difference between Gentiles and Jews. No barbarian or Scythian. So he talks about people of different cultural backgrounds. And we come from different cultural backgrounds, and, and your cultural background may be great, something to celebrate. Paul's saying your identity is not found any longer in your cultural background. Different cultural backgrounds do not pose barriers within the church for unity. Slave or free, your your economic background, your social status, those aren't barriers. Paul is saying whether you're in the high class or the low class or anywhere else in between in the church, that is not where your identity is found in your, in your social standing. You have a new identity. What is this new identity? Verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, We're a chosen people. God chose you. Jesus says in John chapter 15 to his disciples, he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus 
chooses you. Christ chooses you. If you are a Christian, you have a common story with all other Christians, and it's this. It's part of my story. It's part of your story. And that is, I am chosen by God. I'm chosen by Christ. We have this common story. Look at this from Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were apart from God. That's part of all of our stories. At one time, you were apart from God. You were enemies of God. And then God stepped in and he saved you. He rescued you, pulled you out of that that position as his enemy. He did the work. There was no action on your part to earn this. Likewise, there is no action on your part that would unearn that status of being pulled out of darkness in an, and of out of enemy status and made his family. There's nothing you can do to unearn that. So God picked you, God picked me. And that means something really important regarding your place and my place in the church. And it's this, because I am chosen by God, I have nothing to prove and nothing to hide. I hope that when you come in the doors of our church on a Sunday morning or Wednesday evening for Bible study or choir, or if you, when you go into one another's house, houses for like a Bible study, that you don't think, oh, I got, a, I got something to prove or I got something to hide. I hope you don't feel that way because because of our common story or we're chosen by Christ, not because of anything we've done, and he's not going to reject us because of anything we will then do. He did the work of choosing us. Because of that, I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to hide. See, when I feel like I have something to prove, I think people are judging me by what I don't do. I feel like I got to prove myself when I come to church. I feel like people are going to think, "Oh, that that Greg, he just doesn't pray very well." You hear him praying out loud, not very eloquent in his prayers, stumbles over his words. I feel like I got something to prove, you know. I feel like people are judging me by what I do. They must think I'm substandard in some way. I'm not a good Christian. You ever felt that? I hope you don't feel that way coming now. When I feel like I have something to hide, I think people are judging me by what I do, the sins that I commit. Maybe I have a bad moment in front of my kids, or with my kids in front of everyone. I, you know, I get frustrated, yell at them or something. And there are witnesses to that. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what did I do? People are thinking my faith is just weak and I'm messed up. And all of a sudden I feel like I've got something to hide. There must be something wrong with my faith. And feeling like you have something to prove to other Christians or feel like you have something to hide from other Christians, that will, that will in order for you to be accepted, that will kill, that will kill your connection with your church family. So I hope when you come through these doors, you are feeling, I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to hide because we all were chosen by God, not because of anything we've done.
not because we've proved ourselves from God, and not because we've done a really good job of hiding something from God. It's not like we fooled God. He chose us despite of ourselves. Then Paul gives a way to maintain this unity that is completely countercultural. See, most groups try to preserve unity in one of two ways. Either they will have strict rules that you must conform to, and if you do a good job of conforming to those rules, then you're a part of the community. And, and often we will describe such a group that has those rules as a fundamentalist group, fundamental and that word fundamental can have kind of a negative connotation today, right? I don't want to be around fundamental Christians. We have, they're just about obeying rules, and if I don't obey the rules, I won't fit in with them. So that's one way that many groups try to achieve unity, by, by having these standards you have to meet. The other way is, is completely opposite of that. It's where you have no standards whatsoever, and anything goes, and everyone is accepted no matter what. where fundamentalism itself is completely rejected. But actually, a new fundamental comes in and takes its place, and that is complete tolerance. Just no rules, whatever happens is A-OK. Paul says unity actually comes through a different fundamental. It's not fundamental through rules. It's not fundamental through anything goes. It's a different fundamental. Fundamental forgiveness. So look at verse 12. Fundamental forgiveness. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, and then he lists off these great words, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, compassion. That, that's one of those great Greek words that talk about being moved to the inner core of your being when you see someone who is suffering, when you see someone who uh, is just suffering spiritually, for example, you're moved to compassion. When you when you see someone that is overridden by guilt and you have compassion for them, you're moved to your inner being and you want to be kind to them because you're moved to your inner being. And you have humility. And that word humility talks about having an inner lowliness. I'm able to, to, to be gentle and to be patient because I have this inner lowliness inside of me. In other words, I recognize just as someone commits sins over here and those sins may be against me, I may have to show forgiveness. I can do that because I got this inner lowliness because I realize that could be me. That could be me. That easily could be me committing those sins that is offending others. That easily could be me. So you have this inner lowliness, realizing I'm a sinner too. There's gentleness, and then show patience. And that word patient means long-suffering. You know, some people can wait a long time before showing anger. They just let it build up instead. They suppress it. That is not being patient as patience is being used by Paul here. That word means long-suffering, means 
I don't get angry easily. It's not that I'm letting it build up until I finally explode in anger. It's just I don't get angry easily. Why? Because I have this inner loneliness. I realize, hey, yeah, you might have you might have sinned against me, but that easily could have been me sinning against you. And then Paul keeps on going on. Look at look at verse 13. Uh, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, bear with each other. And we have to ask, so is Paul just kind of saying the same thing over and over again, just listing off these different synonyms for forgiveness? And we do that sometimes. You know, we'll, we'll do that for emphasis. You know, you, you put a bunch of pizzas in front of some teenage boys and you say they ate and they consumed and they devoured. Well, you're just kind of saying the same thing over and over again, right? But that's what they're doing. Yeah. We, we do that for emphasis. I don't think Paul is doing that. I think he's giving us just all these different ways to, to see forgiveness, these, these helpful images for us to, to grasp what it is and, and to bear. Scripture's gone. To bear. Um, and we often think of bearing with someone as, oh, I, kind of drudgery. Well, I got I to gotta bear with someone despite something inside of me. Like, I, 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 I'm, I'm bothered. There's something inside of me that's bothered by this person, and I just got to bear with it. But that's not what that word means. It means bear because of something inside of you. Something inside of you is giving you the power to bear with one another, to be patient with another person. And then, and then show forgiveness, Paul says. Forgive one another. And by the way, you know, Jesus talks about forgiveness when he teaches us to pray. Forgive our debts, he says in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our debts. The word that Paul uses actually is a different word for forgiveness than what Jesus uses. Both of them are great words. Paul brings out this other flavor. And what the word that Paul uses comes from the word charis, the Greek word charis. Those of you who like to study Greek know that that is, that's, that's the root word for grace, for gift. Just be generous. Give grace. Show grace. Give grace upon grace. Paul is saying. Paul, through many different words, gives us an expansive picture of what life is like within the church. It is completely forgiving, fundamental forgiveness. It's slow to get angry in the first place. It's humble because I have this inner loneliness. I'm reminded of my own tendency to sin when I see someone else falling into sin. So I'm not judging them, not thinking of, oh, boy, how substandard they are. So there's never any contempt. Never do I say, oh, I can't believe. Can you see what someone did against me? I, I never say that because I realize, boy, I could easily be doing that same thing. And how do you show all this? Well, you think back to your story. My story is... I am forgiven by Christ. The only way that I can really forgive without hanging on to any anger or contempt against someone is for me to remember, I am forgiven. And there's some people here who have just not given up on that anger. They want to hang on to that anger. Remember your story. You are forgiven. In order for a church to be strong, I need to know 
that when I fail you, and I will fail you, I'm not like Jose Altuve just comes in the end with a great hit right at the right moment coming through. I won't come through at times. I will drop the ball. I won't get the hit. I will fail you. That's what we all need to be remembering in the church. I need to know that when I fail you, that you won't hold that against me. That you'll say, I forgive you, and let's, let's go at this relationship again. I'm with you. See, too often when people get offended by other Christians, they just start backing out, checking out, and say, I quit. And it just leaves the church weak, doesn't it? Just ha- barely hanging on to one another. It leaves the church weak. So if you've been hurt, don't back out. Don't check out. Real strength comes through forgiveness. And then Paul mentions one more way the church can be like no other place on earth. And this way may be one of the hardest to swallow. In verse 16, he says, let the message of Christ, the words of Christ, dwell among you richly as you teach as you admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So so it says teach. That word teach means to instruct, right? Be instructive. And admonishing... Well, that's teaching as well, but it comes with a little warning, doesn't it? It's teaching someone because I really care about you. There's a warning aspect to it. It's concerned for this well-being of the other. So Paul says if you want to be strong, you have to do this. You have to give people permission to speak into your life. For us to be a strong church, we have to give people permission to speak. You have to know I'm not wise enough to make it, to make it through life alone, and I have to be able to share my decisions with others because I will make poor decisions. If I'm struggling, I've got to bring others in and just seek their counsel and guidance because I am, I'm unable to, to do it on my own. You have to give people permission to speak. The words of Christ into your life, else, you know, I'll fail. You know, the church has no shortage today of of pastor failures, right? We see these in the news, pastor failures, or a pastor or some other leader falls into sexual sin or, or steals money from the church or commits crimes and either resigns or is thrown into jail. And over and over again, if you, if you listen to the stories of these pastors, over and over again, what you'll hear is, you'll hear them say, I had no one to turn to. I had no one I could go to with this struggle that I was going through. And they felt completely alone. And when you have no one to turn to, you will fall. So there's one word that captures permission to speak, and it's just not a very popular word today, but... Here's what it is. It's authority. You can write that down by permission to speak. Authority. 
because that's what permission to speak is. It's giving someone authority in your life. And I know we, (laughs) authority is another one of those kind of negative words today. You know, in so many areas of our life, authority is involuntary. I'm at school. That means my teacher is my authority, right? When she says, hey, it's test day, guess what that means? It's test day. A test is going to appear on my desk because she has authority over me. She says, you need to be quiet. Well, I need to be quiet. The, the bell rings at the end of the class. I stand up to get up. And my teacher says, the bell does not dismiss you. I dismiss you because the teacher has authority in my life. Your, your supervisor, your boss at work is your authority. When she gives you a deadline, it's okay, yeah. I wrote that on my calendar, and I'm going to meet it. And when she says, I need you to take a trip to New York, you say, okay, when do I need to leave? Your authority. We're driving on the highway. You're just kind of zipping down the road, and all of a sudden you see blue and red lights flashing behind you. You know, there is an authority figure behind you. It's not if you would like to, you can pull over. Let me suggest that to you. It's... No, these lights means you need to pull over now because that policeman has authority over you. We, so in all these ways, you know, authority comes out as kind of involuntary. It's kind of forced on us. Oh. And, you know, and I'll even admit, because we're either Christians or maybe you're here thinking about being a Christian, there's, there's a good chance that most of us would say, you know, God, I, I want you to be the authority of my life. And we give it a good shot of letting God be the authority of our life. We give it a good try. Sometimes we mess up, but still, that, that intent is there. So we have all these positions of authority over us, and, and we want to say, oh, I just I want to keep some authority to myself, right? I don't need any other authoritative voices in my life. And so it makes giving others permission to speak in our life, very difficult because we want to resist giving people authority. But listen, me being able to navigate my life on my own, hear from Christ on my own, understand the scriptures on my own, that is a false story. That is a false storyline. My story is this. I need to be led by Christ, and I need you to help me be led by Christ. God says you need to give others permission to speak and have authority in your life. When an older, wiser Christian who has good insight into situations because they've been down that road before sees something in your life and says, you know, I've been there before, I've I have felt how you feel now, and I think you need to do this. Or I I see this relationship that you're in right now, and I don't think it's good for you. I think you need to do this. Or I think I see this path you're going down. I think it's the wrong path. I think you need to do this. Giving them authority means I'm going to really, really listen carefully to what they're saying and submit. Say, okay, because I'm giving you authority in my life. I will, I recognize that you are helping me hear from Christ, and I'll I'll, I'll fall under what you're asking me to do. And you know what happens? You know what happens when 
we realize here at Hope Church that when we come through these doors, we have nothing to prove, we have nothing to hide. When we realize that, you know, we, when we forgive one another, um, or when we sin against one another, we will find forgiveness. When we realize that, when we realize that we can give one another the the authority to speak into our life. I mean, we we're like these these individual pieces of of wood here, and the different strengths, different sizes, but. You know, alone, I could put, it won't take too much work to put enough pressure on these just to break them. But when we realize together, man, we have nothing to prove. We have nothing to hide from one another because we've been chosen by God. God has put us together in this family. We're we're here to forgive one another. We don't have to worry about people holding offenses over us and grudges over us because there's this inner humility in our life. And, man, what we realize is when we have that attitude and we give people the permission to speak, the Holy Spirit takes those actions of ours and just makes us so incredibly strong, so incredibly strong. together. My question is, how are you going to go deeper? And I hope you've, hope you've kind of identify yourself as one of these little strands of wood here. Maybe you're a big one. Maybe you're a small one. I don't know. My, my question is, how are you going to go deeper? How are you going to get to be a part of this more? It comes when you realize, boy, I am important to this body. I'm important to this body because God has put me here. I don't have to prove my importance. God has put me here. I'm important to this body. Maybe maybe that's one thing you can do is just consider your importance to Hope Church. Or maybe one thing you can do to go deeper is is just show forgiveness. You know, I've, I've been holding a grudge over so-and-so. I've, I've, I still can't get over what he or she did. Maybe it's time just to let go of that and have that inner humility. Or maybe it's giving others permission to speak into your life, and maybe that's getting connected to a Bible study or a small group or going to an individual and saying, I've got this struggle going on. I need to hear from you. Let me share this situation and just speak into my life right now. Don't forget, we have a prayer team that's going to be up after this worship service. And anything going on in your life, they will pray for you. If you want to go deeper in your involvement in the body here at Hope Church, they will be here to pray for you confidentially. Seek out prayer as you think through what does God want me to do to grow deeper. But this I know, I know this. 
that when you go deeper, when collectively we, we go deeper together, we get stronger. And I know because Christ tells me the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you give to us a family, that you, that you adopt us into your family, but we belong to this family, this church family. And help us to know that the church family doesn't kick you out, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't say you're no longer welcome here when we mess up, when we make mistakes. But we can forgive. We can find grace. We can be who we are and know that we will find grace and love and support. Father, we pray that you would grow us strong as we, as we are filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would truly speak the words of Christ. We pray for that, that as we speak to one another, we would be encouraging one another. We speak love and encouragement to one another. Lord, we pray that you would be creating us to be that set-apart place, that set-apart church, And the gates of darkness, the powers of darkness and fear will not overcome it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.